Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church again. My name is Chris Colquitt. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my great privilege to open God's Word with you. If you're a visitor here, please know you're most welcome. I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be out in the foyer or whatever we call that space out there, and you can come say hi to me. Um, I have no song for you to sing today, just a sermon to give. So thank you, Dawn, for that. That was beautiful. It occurred to me, though, that we don't... uh, I was trying to think of more recent songs that some of our younger generation here might get, and they just don't sing at the start of of shows anymore, which is another sign of the decay of our culture. Okay. Um, We are looking at, what are we doing? Abraham, Genesis, chapter 19. Uh, We're sort of covering 18 and 19 today, the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're also, though, going to read Luke chapter 17 from the New Testament, which will hopefully make sense towards the end of that reading. Give your attention to God's word. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And this then from Luke chapter 17. And Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. 
so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this, your word, and for, for revealing yourself to us in it. Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us, and we thank you that you have done so savingly in your holy scriptures. Lord, we pray now that the spirit who breathed out these words through Moses and through Luke, that he would be among us, that the spirit, your spirit, that you would speak through me and in all of our hearts, that we would see and treasure Christ, our Savior and Redeemer and Rescuer, and that we would cling ever to him as we look forward to his return. This we ask in his matchless name. Amen. Okay, so as we're studying Genesis, one of our tasks each week is to figure out what the heck this book, which was written a long time ago, recording events even slightly longer than that, have to do with our lives today as Christians. We stand before all of the Old Testament in many ways, and we have Christ at the end of that. How have things changed? Sometimes that's complicated. Last week, that was complicated. I'm not apologizing for last week's sermon. I'm just telling you that was a complicated sermon, okay? Circumcision and how it relates to us is a difficult topic. This week, we get to rest because Jesus did the work for us. Jesus tells us exactly how the story of Lot and his wife relates to us by putting it into this, this, this discourse in Luke chapter 17. And so our goal today is very simply to understand how Jesus intends for us to see Lot's wife and why he says these words, remember Lot's wife. There's more to see in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's what we're going to focus on this day. Okay, if you're taking notes, here's the outline for you. First, get out. Second, lose your life. And third, rest in God's mercy. Get out, lose your life, and rest in God's mercy. That's our approach. I'll warn those of you who get discouraged by such things, the first point is significantly longer than the second two. So if you arrive at the end of the first point, concerned at the length of the sermon, we'll get going after that, okay? So first, get out. Jesus, in, John, or in Luke 17, is teaching his disciples about his second coming, and he wants them to see a few things about it. He wants them to see that it's going to be unexpected, but also obvious when it comes, okay? So that's, that's the first part of this text that we read. It says, look, you're not going to know when it's going to happen, and when it does happen, there's going to be no question that it's happened, all right? So people who come and say, hey, I know when it's going to happen, they're wrong, right? And they say, oh, he's over there? I said, no, he's coming with lightning in the sky. There's not going to be any ambiguity, Jesus says, when he returns. But the second thing he wants them to see as he's describing his second coming is that it is the day of judgment. That Christ's second coming is the coming of the wrath of God against all sin and unrighteousness, which is a terrifying thing. And he uses the story of Noah 
and the flood and the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to show us those things. And one thing that we can see in Christ's use of these stories is helps us understand Genesis itself, which is that as God moves in these radical moments of judgment intermittently throughout the course of redemptive history, and it seems kind of weird, like, God, why did you get so fired up there? You seem to be okay with us sinning for a lot of the time. The, the, the reason is not that God got especially fired up, but God's trying to show us and teach us what that final judgment is going to look like. And so there are these moments where, in many ways, the last days break into the now, and we see a picture of what it's going to look like, and then God goes back to sustaining us in his common grace and, rest- and restraining his judgment to the last day. Okay, so Jesus says, I'm coming back someday. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be obvious when it happens, and it's going to be a day of judgment. And there's a warning here in the story of Noah and of Lot, because on that day when the flood came and on the day that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, it woke up, it was a day like any other. People were eating and drinking, they were having parties, they were getting married, they were doing work. And Jesus, in Luke 17 and Matthew 24, is a very similar passage if you want to go read that another time, saying you got to be ready. How does Lot's wife have anything to do with that? What's unique about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah relative to Noah, which there's a lot of similarities between the scene, um, is that we have this drama of the departure. In Noah, it's pretty clean. He builds the ark, he gets on the boat, the family is saved. But here we have this agony uh, of, of what it looks like for Lot and his family to actually leave Sodom. His sons in law, those scoundrels, sons-in-law are, they tend to be that way, right? They don't believe him. They're not listening to their father-in-law because that's what we do. Um, the others, Lot himself wakes up and he's like, oh, I guess it's time to go. And, and the angels have to go and grab him, right? He's lingering. They seize him. They drag him out. And then we have the scene of Lot's wife, who is the final person to be destroyed, as it were, who's leaving the city but doesn't quite leave fast enough and ends up being caught up in the destruction with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Jesus tells us, remember Lot's wife. So he wants us to be prepared for this thing that's coming. Lot's wife is this person who's invited out and yet doesn't leave and gets destroyed. And he wants us to think about that. Okay, that's setting up our our stage. Now, Let's look a little bit more at the story of of Genesis chapter 19. Um, A couple of clarifying points here that help me, and I will just confess some ignorance, which I think now I'm revising my view of this. But here's what I used to think was going on with Lot's wife. She's, you know, Abraham, or not Abraham, Lot's like right there, and she's walking behind nicely. And there's something in turning, there's like a radiation force or something coming at her, uh, and she needs to be wearing like her solar goggles, right? You know, like with the, when the eclipse happens and they tell you not to look at the sun. And there's something about looking at the city and the destruction. That's probably not what happened, okay? A few things. First of all, we don't know exactly what destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It could just be a completely supernatural and unrelated to providential natural causes thing. That's, that's a very easy way to read this text. Could be the right answer. Also could be an earthquake that caused a massive fire, This is a region that has a lot of flammable stuff on the ground, 
and a lot of earthquakes. So that's an option. My favorite option, which is probably the least well-supported and yet might be right, uh, is a meteor coming down and hitting the place. I like that particularly. It explodes above the sky and the atmosphere and then rains down. That's how I'm going to choose to imagine it. But it doesn't matter, okay? And Lot, Lot's wife, the issue, it seems, is not that she simply looked, but rather her location, okay? If you look at verse, uh, verse 26, there's an important detail here. But Lot's wife, so, so Lot's gone into Zoar, but Lot's, and so that's why the angels can start, start the destruction. They say, can't do it until you're there. He's gone in, they start, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And so the, I think the best way to read this text is not that Lot's wife was right next to Lot and looked backwards and shouldn't have, but rather that she was looking backwards, but she was probably a decent way back from him, right? Y'all can understand this. It's a beautiful morning in Sodom. Your husband's like, we got to leave. There's some weird strangers who are dragging him off. And she's like, okay, I, I guess I'll come, right? But she tarries, just like, just like Lot was tearing in the first instance. Maybe there's someone back in the city that she wants to say bye to. We don't need to speculate on that. But you could see her telling Lot, I'm right behind you. But, but she's not. And so her destruction is a result of her not leaving fast enough. Y'all got that? That's, I was going with the solar goggle thing. Not the solar, the, the solar eclipse goggles. But that's, I think, probably not the deal. Okay. So why is Jesus using this story to help his disciples understand the second coming. That's, we've, we've set the stage, understand a few things. What's going on here? Well, Luke 17.33, I think, is really important for us to understand because here Jesus provides effectively his commentary on Lot's wife. He says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus looks at Lot's wife and he invites you and me to remember Lot's wife. And Lot's wife is a picture of someone who sought to preserve her life and lost it. And we need to do a little work there because it's not immediately apparent from the story that she's trying to preserve her life. But if we understand her life to be literally everything that she's leaving behind, it starts to make some sense. This woman we think was born in Sodom. Her family's there. She married a foreigner. But this is, this is, all of her stuff is there. Everything she knows is there. And she's being asked to leave. And what Jesus tells us is that somehow her delay was this crisis of conscience trying to preserve this life, not being willing to lose this life that she had been drug out of. Y'all see that? There was a cost for Lot's wife well, how does this relate to the second coming? Another moment of ignorance, or at least hopefully learning, I've gone through this week. Um, in reading Luke 17 or Matthew 24, it's easy to think that this is Jesus' instruction manual for what to do when the lightning shows up in the sky. Okay? So when you see the lightning, don't look back like Lot's wife. Look this way. Y'all, anyone else? Kind of that's how we... Okay. When the lightning shows up, it's too late. That's what Jesus is saying. The drama that takes place in both the story of Noah and in the story of Lot is what happens between the revelation that this is going to happen and it actually happening. So God tells Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood, build an ark. In between that time is where Noah's 
faithfulness or lack thereof would show up. Same thing with these angels who tell Lot and his family, got to get out of here. What that means is that you and I today live in Jesus' mind in the space between the revelation of his second coming and the judgment that is with it and that actually happening. And so we are finding ourselves on the plane, walking away from Sodom. And, and in that instance, Jesus wants us to remember Lot's wife. We're there. When the lightning shows up, it's too late. This is a warning. All right. So what do we do with that? Let's try to get practical for a second. Should we all put our money together, buy some land in the mountains, build a monastery, get some Uber Eats and groceries delivered, and just chill up there, withdrawn from the world, praying a lot until God comes back? Is that what we should do? Now, the answer is no, but if you don't read Luke 17 and think to yourself, that's what we're supposed to do, or maybe that's what we're supposed to do, then you're not reading Luke 17 closely enough. It sure seems like that's what we're supposed to do from Luke 17. There is absolutely a withdrawal, a leaving behind, a getting out that Jesus wants us to do. Okay, but if we read the rest of the New Testament and Jesus' own life and we look at his ministry, we see that's not actually what we're supposed to do, that there is goodness to this world still and to our vocations in it, that our day-to-day life is an opportunity to glorify God and to love our neighbor, that we can have breakfast, that we can have lunch, even as we look forward to Christ's return. So how do we put those two things together? Well, here's, here's my suggestion for y'all to, to ponder this week as you reflect on this text. We are called, I think, to live our lives now oriented to Christ's second coming in such a way that were he to come right now, every moment of your life, your life would make sense and you would greet his arrival with joy. Now that's abstract. We're going to make it more clear in a second. But do you get what I'm saying? The the best place that could happen is here, this morning. And Lord, may it be, right this very moment that Christ would return. If he did, our worship service would move seamlessly into eternity, which would be awesome. Right? You would be here and you'd say, oh, you're here, Jesus. Get that guy off the stage. This guy who's tired could go take a nap and rest in the finished work of Jesus. That would be awesome. But what about Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday when you're doing dishes or you're doing spreadsheets or you're caring for somebody? What if Jesus comes back then? And what we want to do, and actually that example of the church shows us the way to go, which is that what are we doing here? We're talking to God, we're hearing his word, we're praying, we're offering worship to him. And the beauty of the New Testament vision of our lives is that we can do all of those things as you're doing spreadsheets and changing diapers and cleaning the house and eating dinner. And so we are called to live our lives, all of our lives, in such a way, Romans 12, 1 and 2, they're offered as a living sacrifice to God. And so when Jesus shows up, we're like, you're here. So glad. Ready for you. Y'all see that? Um, 
when, when Kristen and I got married, uh, we got married in Colorado, and we got to stay at this really nice hotel. Uh, the wedding was there, and so I was staying with my family, and we were traditional and, you know, good Christians, so we didn't see each other that day. Uh, we didn't take any photos or have any reveal. I was going to see her when she walked down the aisle, which is what everybody should do. Another sign of culture's degradation and decay. Um, <laughs> So that morning, though, it's an afternoon wedding. That morning, I woke up uh, with my family and some buddies and set out. It was a beautiful fall day in Colorado. This isn't that important. but And had, had room service breakfast outside on a patio. And I still remember that morning. It was delightful. I was doing something exceptionally ordinary. I was having breakfast, talking to people. But there was a time coming that day when something extraordinary would happen that only happened once in my life, Right? So I was living in the ordinary, and yet my whole day was oriented towards that moment when somebody came up and said, hey, it's time to get the tux on and go to the, go to the, go to the church, and Kristen's going to be there, and y'all get married, right? Um, we had given gifts to each other and written letters, kind of cute. And I, but, uh, so we were, t- we were kind of sort of communicating, but I, we were doing ordinary things oriented towards this incredible thing that was coming. If that's a helpful picture, keep it. If it's not, forget it. That's what our lives are supposed to look like in this, in this moment. There's going to be a day when the Lord says, it's time to put on the wedding dress. Your groom has come. Would that be soon? Live like you're ready for it. Okay. Second point. See, we're getting faster now here. Lose your life. Remember Jesus' commentary. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. It's nice to think about room service outside in Colorado in the fall. But this life that Christ is calling us to entails loss. That was true for Lot's wife, and it's true for you and for me. It entails leaving behind some stuff, even as we live in the here and now. That phrase, whoever loses his life, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, whoever loses it will keep it. That may sound familiar to those of you who know your Bible because it appears a number of other times Jesus says it. He says it once other time in Luke, twice in Matthew, once in Mark, and once in John. And here's something really interesting. All of the other times in the synoptic gospels, so not John. We'll talk about John later, not today. All the other times in the synoptic gospels, four other times Jesus says that phrase. The immediately prior thing that Jesus says is the same. Here's what it is. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I love that as a commentary itself on remember Lot's wife. Because here we can be very compassionate on Lot's wife. She was being asked to die to her entire life that she knew and follow her husband into deliverance, and she had a really hard time doing that. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are asked to leave behind, in many ways, this world as we follow Jesus. And that's described as bearing your cross, which is an instrument of death. You're called to leave behind your sin and your idols, and that was part of Lot's wife's problem. Sodom was her home, but it was also a place of great sinfulness, and you and I are called to leave behind our idolatry and our sin. But we're also called to leave behind good things, 
maybe your life itself. But until that day, you're called to leave behind your self-interest as you follow Christ. You're called to turn down the volume on the self-care talk. You're called to go out and seek someone else's good who doesn't deserve it at great cost to yourself. As you await Christ's appearing. Because that's the heavenly life. Because living that way, when Jesus shows up, you're going to feel really lonely right now living that way. But when Jesus shows up, you're like, that's, that's him. You make sense of my life. I seem weird and out of place, and I hurt in this world, but I know that someday my Savior is going to appear, and then it's all going to make sense. We are called to lay down our lives, to take up our cross. Lot's wife was called to that, and she failed. Takes us then to our third point, which is to rest in God's mercy. Um, I have a confession, another confession. Uh, y'all, are, y'all know on the airlines when they're doing the safety briefing, one, I usually don't listen to them, but two, if I happen to not have my AirPods or whatever and I have to listen to them, they have this, they, they're, very, they're very insistent that if there's an evacuation, you leave everything and you get off the plane. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I always think to myself, I'm not really sure that I would do that. And the truth is, if you look at airline accidents, most people don't. Because my laptop is right there. Right? It's got all this, it's going to be such a pain if I don't get my laptop with me. Do you realize how insane that is? The airplane's on fire. <laughs> Death is before me. And I feel the need to get my laptop. And honestly, I hope that in that moment, the Lord will give me strength just to get off the plane. But you might see a video of me jumping off the slide with my laptop in the arms. May it never be. Okay? We're not good at this thing that we're called to do. Amen? I, I love my home here. And I am tied to it in many ways that are not remembering Lot's wife. And I can relate to her. But the last thing I want us to see as we look at this text is the mercy of God. First to Lot himself. Do you all see in verse 16? He lingered. Lot is not any better than his wife at this moment. He's, he doesn't want to go. And what do the angels do? They come and they seize him and they drag him out. And it says they did that because God is merciful. And then he gets out of town and he's like, I don't really want to go all the way to the mountains. Can I just go to this little city over here? And they say, sure, we'll do that for you too. Do you see God's mercy towards Lot? The only reason he's getting out is because God is merciful to him. God is merciful to you and he will grab you and take you even as you're trying to grab your laptop and whatever life you don't want to lay down for him. Now, I just criticize Lot, but switch your flip on Lot for a second. Flip your switch, whatever. Um, Lot's a very ambiguous character, but he's also the righteous one in Sodom. And that's important for the way this whole story plays out. Relative to the Sodomites, he's a righteous man. And that's why Abraham intercedes for him and he's delivered from Sodom. Um, His daughters, his sons-in-law, his wife, their exit ticket from Sodom is entirely on the basis of Lot and his standing before God. You and I are Lot's wife and we have a 
the, the, the question for you and me ultimately is this. Will we stick with our husband? Will we stick with Christ our Lord? Brothers and sisters, you are the bride of Christ and you will be delivered from destruction, not because you are righteous, but because you are with him. And so every day of our life, even as we fail and fail and fail to leave behind this world, what you cannot fail to do is to cling to your Savior, Jesus Christ, your husband, your bridegroom, on whose merit you're getting out of town. So as you fail, cling to him. As you're tempted to linger, let him seize you and grab you and drag you out and don't let go. Stick with Jesus. Follow him in his way and don't let him out of your sight. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for the promise of grace that we see in it. Lord, help us to remember Lot's wife, both to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you And as we follow you to cling to you, our Savior, the righteous one, our bridegroom who delivers us from death. Be with us now as we celebrate your supper. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.